quits, I keep on working on this I'm working hard on this It's pain, obviously it is Oh, oh, Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Lou, when we decided to do an episode on crime novels, I had not decided which books I would read because I was really only just starting to consider all the various options. And that was when I realised just how many different types of crime novels yeah, there are. incredible. It's a massive category. Yeah, it is. And the books I've read this past week all cover completely different types of crime books. So I was sort of thinking about this, and I know you're a bit more expert in this, but there are sort of the Agatha Christie, the classic crime books, which are sort of almost considered to be a cosy yes. read. They're set in, say, a charming English village, and there might be a drawing room murder, and then there's the list of possible suspects, which is all given to the reader. Yes. So the reader can actually try to work out who done it. And there are other ones like that, uh, the Father Brown. Oh, yes. I haven't uh, thought about those. G.K. Chesterton yes. and the Dorothy L. Sayers. Yes. And there's probably a million others. And then there are the really gritty Scandi Noir. Oh, my favourite. Yeah. And they're immensely popular, aren't they? They are. They are. And there's nothing at all cosy about them. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, and not as formulaic either. Mm. Not that I'm saying there's anything wrong with formulaic. No, I agree. But, but you just never know where you're no, going to end up. No. Yeah. I don't know what it is about the Nordic countries, but they just seem to produce endless arrays of great authors. Yes, they do. I don't they know whether do. it's the climate. I think or it's the isolation maybe, possibly. possibly yeah. You know, the, yeah, I think you're right about the climate though, yes. And they're also, I think, in a category you could call police procedural. Yes. Although that crosses all countries. I think there are police procedural in every country. And the other very edge of your seat crime book is the thriller. I'm not quite sure how you distinguish... Yes, one where, from the other. Where does mystery become thriller? It's a, it's yeah. an interesting line. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think when your heart is racing and you yeah. you're scared for the protagonist, yeah. like in a Jane Harper book, when you're fearful for the protagonist, yes. personally, yes, you keep absolutely. turning the pages. Yeah. I, that's what I would call a thriller. And do you think it's ramped up in this modern world as well? I, I mean, think so. I think we were more satisfied oh, yeah. years ago with the yeah. charming mystery of Agatha Christie, albeit a murder at the end of it or yeah. part of it. But it, it was sort of it was all kept at very much at yeah, arm's it length. Was gentler, wasn't and the, it? And the and the bad action had already happened. That's true. And yes. we were just investigating yes. in the sanity and, and peace of the aftermath. Yeah, you're right. There's real distance. Whereas a thriller, the... maybe you're more in the thick of it you and you, you, yeah. you're fearful for yeah. the person. So, yeah. And then there are the true crime books, which are really flourishing now. And that whole category of book and podcast and TV show is... Huge. Immensely Huge. popular and growing, I think, Because we're popularity. all lawyers really at heart, aren't we? Yeah. I mean, I might be wrong, but I think the fascination with true crime novels probably started more with podcasts like Serial 
and the teacher's pet. And then it spilled over more into the books that I think, I mean, there were some books before, but there seem to be a lot more books now. Yeah. And I think the true crime podcasts seem to also have been flourishing because of unsolved crimes. Yes. So you felt like you were in on, you you were helping work out the investigation. (laughs) But they're often journalists, like those Canadian ones, they're all journalists trying to solve. Yes. Uh, you know, something that the police haven't been able Almost to do. Almost in so. real time. Yeah. You, yeah, yeah that, that, that is the pleasure of them, I think, yeah. is that you really do feel like you're living through yeah. the actual solving. And, yeah, you, all your ideas are there being yeah. <laughs> thrown into the mix. And then there are the quirky and fun crime novels like the Agatha Raisin oh, I series adore of books. Agatha Raisin. Yes, and she's gorgeous. And there's definitely been a murder, but it's all kept very light mm. and it's almost a bit cartoonish in its unreality. But it's still very delightful and enjoyable. So tell enjoyable. me who writes those because I've only seen it's her on MC television. It's MC Beaton and that's not her real name. Okay. And I, I'm sorry, I can't remember no, her real name. I and just... she also wrote the, he had the dog, the Scotty dog. Oh, yes, Hamish Macbeth. Hamish Macbeth. So she Hamish also Macbeth. writes all of those. Oh, okay. Same author. Because I've, I mean, I think that yes. television series is just and delightful. Yes. So for some reason I wasn't really in the mood for too much of the gritty kind of crime <laughs> novel. So I've gone in a sort of a different direction today. I have read and I've loved all the Stig Larsson books, you know, The Girl with the Dragon yeah. Tattoo. I just could not put them down. They're but pretty th- gritty. They are so. They are the ultimate gritty, mm. I think. But you have to be in the right mood for that sort of thing and I just wasn't. And it was only as I was preparing for our conversation today that I realised why I wasn't and it's because I had just finished listening to a full series of a true crime podcast, which I'll mention later. But I feel like I've sort of had my fill of psychopaths. Saturation point, I guess. <laughs> Yes. So even though I'm a murderino, I'm also a complete chicken when it comes to scary <laughs> things. So I've gone for the sort of slightly lighter end of things. Well, I love preparing for this week's episode, Virginia, because you know I do spend an inordinately large amount of time reading crime fiction, and I probably have a slightly stronger stomach for yeah, it I'm than sure. you. Oh, way stronger, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, because I do love all the gritty stuff, uh, which is not to say that I don't put a book down from time to time. Yeah, but that's break. the beauty of a book. It is. Is that it you is. can just put it down yeah. and regroup, and exactly then, <laughs> when you're ready, take <laughs> a deep breath yeah. and start again. <laughs> and this week, um, my husband recommended that I listen to uh, an interview that. Per- Radio presenter Gillian O'Shaughnessy did. She's on our national public broadcaster ABC Radio here, and she interviewed Australian crime fiction writer Chris Hammer. Now you'll remember he wrote Scrublands, which came out last year. Yeah, Yeah, I loved it as well. Um, It was a big read, wasn't it? Yeah, and And he's such a great um, main character. That journalist, yeah, and quite flawed. Yeah. And the names, I love the names. Yeah, actually, I haven't thought about that. Yeah, yeah. Mandy Blonde and yes, they're some yes. very distinctive. They were almost Dickensian names. I, I thought it was quite an ambitious plot, actually. But his his new book, Silver, has just been released, which I haven't read yet, and again features his protagonist Martin Skarsden again from Scrublands, who of course is an investigative journalist. But the point of this is that they were they were discussing the emergence of outback or dingo noir, so crime novels that are set in the isolated outback of Australia. And I loved that idea, Virginia, that we might be developing our own genre. I love it. 
But we probably need a bit more than just Jane Harper. Yes, exactly. Chris Hammer. Well, Chris Hammer attributes Jane Harper to the reason why there is now internationally all this interest yes. in sort of, you know, our sort of harsh, unforgiving kind of... Cl- and um, the heat. Exactly. And it's the sort of breeding ground. Mm. It's not so much the breeding ground for crime. I think it's where criminals can hide maybe. Mm. Yeah. But this week I read Anne Cleve's new book, The Long Call. Now, Cleves has a huge following. She's a prolific crime fiction author and she started with a mystery series in the 1980s which I have never read the Palmer Jones books and Palmer and Jones were bird watchers twitches that's a sort of a series of books and that's because her late husband was a bird watcher okay a keen bird watcher when she met him he was already very keen on bird watching and I've heard interviews with her where she talked about him and his friends sort of being at the ready and someone sending out a message that there's a particular type of bird <laughs> that, that's been spotted somewhere and then they'd all jump in the car and with a thermos and their binoculars how, and race off to divine. try and a red crested yeah, spotter yeah, lesser spotted such and such and then she had an inspector ramsey's series which i did read and then she of course moved to vera stanhope in the early 2000 who is beloved by many oh yes and of course there's a tv series vera and at the same time she was also writing a series based on shetland island with detective jimmy perez oh yeah who is also fantastic and i've read several of those and i really enjoy them and of course they have also been the basis for a very successful tv series shetland but with The Long Call, Anne Cleves has a new detective, and that is Detective Inspector Matthew Venn. Now, The Long Call is set in North Devon, uh, near the town of Barnstable, uh, which is close to where Matthew Venn grew up and where he has now returned as an inspector. And we learn that Matthew's been a sort of a bright child, but he did not get on well at school or at university. He always felt very odd and strange and he didn't fit in at all. And it turns out that he was raised in a very closed brethren sect. Oh, wow. A strict evangelical community from which he uh, is now estranged and, in fact, has been estranged for some time. He was sort of excommunicated by them when he chose to challenge their beliefs and values. Uh, so he hasn't had much contact with his parents at all. And the book opens with him at his father's funeral. He's out of sight because he's uninvited. And he receives a call that a body has been found on a beach. What a compelling character. Yeah, he's really interesting. I mean, of course, with crime fiction, and this is going to be, you know, a feature of our episode today, we can't tell you too much because we'll be giving away facts that are central to the story. But in this book... There's a lot of action around a community centre called the Woodyard, which has a cafe and community classes and services, and it attracts a lot of volunteers. And it also attracts people who've lost their way in life that require support. So there's an endless supply of possible suspects, (laughs) I'm guessing. Well, suspects and also, you know, victims as well. So the Woodyard is actually run by Matthew Venn's husband, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. Woodyard is the name because it used to be an old woodyard. Okay. But it's I a, was thinking it's a, that people might do actual woodwork there. Well, they do do a bit of woodwork. Okay. There are classes, okay. there are certainly yeah. art and Lots craft of implements. There. <laughs> <laughs> but it's his husband, Matthew Venn's husband, Jonathan, who runs the woodyard. So that kind of complicates his investigation. And, of course, here we have a gay detective inspector yeah. as well. So I listened to an interview with Anne Cleves and she was quite nervous about creating this new detective because yeah, obviously she has 
beloved followers of Vera and Jimmy Perez, and she was quite concerned about how he might be perceived because she's starting again, really. I mean, she's starting a new series. This is going to be called the Two Rivers series, and the long call is the first of that. And she was concerned about how people might react to him. He's a very interesting, um, I think, layered and complex man. He's quite quiet and humble. He's not a leader in the traditional sense. You know, he's clearly holding on to quite a bit of damage from his upbringing. And I imagine being a gay married man, he would even be more isolated from that community. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, that they, they completely disapprove mm. with everything mm. about him, really. He did, the fact that he dropped out of university, mm. he, he moved from the sect and, and clearly now has chosen to marry a man. But some of the values that must have been part of his upbringing still have a little bit of a hold on him and you get the sense that he's actually fighting with himself mm. and his relationship with Jonathan is his complete refuge. It's rather lovely, lovely. actually. Um, I think she's done a really good job revealing his thought processes as a detective. You know, as he's working through the investigation with his team, it feels very authentic. He's got two sidekicks. There's a female sergeant <laughs> whom he... He sort of simultaneously disapproves of her and admires her at the same time. She's a single mum. And then he's got also got a very cocky, ambitious constable. And they're quite good sort of multidimensional characters. And I think that augurs well for the series going forward. Mm, mm. So, look, I think The Long Call is good holiday reading. Mm. The one I read, that which was probably, you know, would be more on the gritty end of the ones I read and certainly by no means... You, I don't think you would call this very gritty, but it's excellent, it was the Alan Carter novel, Heaven Sent, and it's published by Fremantle Press, and it features his detective, Detective Sergeant Philip Cato Kwong. Cato is his nickname. I think it was a pejorative nickname that he was given as a child, sort of a racist taunt. And I would categorise this as sort of a contemporary Australian crime novel, but it's not yeah. bush crime. So no. it's sort of, it's a bit Jane Harper, Chris Hammer, a bit Peter Temple perhaps. Yes, yeah. Alan Carter was born in the UK, but he's lived in Australia since 1991. And I think he also spends time in New Zealand. And he's got a very varied career, um, judging by the, the blurb on the inside of the book. So this is set in Fremantle. And for that reason alone, I loved it. Yeah, fabulous. There's just something rather delightful about reading a book that's set in a place near where you live and which yes, is very familiar. your own backyard. Mm. I hadn't read any of his earlier books in this series, so I didn't have the backstory about Cato. That didn't impede my enjoyment of the story at all. I still really enjoyed it. However, the story does circle back to yeah. an earlier case and an integral character from an earlier book comes back into Cato's life and that character meant nothing to me. In this book, Cato has, in quite a short space of time, he's met and fallen in love with and married his wife, Sharon, and they've had a baby girl, Ella, and he's struggling not to make the mistakes of his first marriage in letting the job dominate his yeah, family okay. life. And Sharon is struggling herself uh, with having stopped work as a federal detective mm. and becoming a stay-at-home mother with no sleep and a very young baby. So they're both struggling in their separate ways, but both very determined to not let a rift arise. Yeah. And the novel opens with the murder of a homeless man in a park in Fremantle. And when the body's found, there's a playing card, a jack of clubs Ooh. tucked in his pocket. 
And turns out that this is the third murder where a playing card wow, has been yes. left. And so the police have to start admitting to the public that a serial killer mm. is on the loose in Fremantle. And so the murder squad becomes involved and Cato is co-opted onto the squad. And I, I gather he's been disciplined for something he's done bad in a previous mm. book. So he's sort of been out of favour in a previous book, and but his talent has meant that they've co-opted him back in because they need him and they know that he will solve the crime. So he begins to try and track down who could be committing these murders and why, what their motivation is. And a journalist becomes involved because he manages to get in contact with the murderer mm. through social media. And the police realise that they need to bring this journalist into the fold to get all the information that he's getting. So these quite sinister text messages and things, not signed. You have no idea who they're from. They're, you just know they're from the That's murderer. quite a modern device. Very modern, very yeah. modern. And there are some fantastic characters in this. I particularly love there's one very sinister retired cop who Cato goes to interview in a nursing home. And this guy's had a stroke. He's, he's old and he's very physically diminished, but his mind is still completely sharp. And his tentacles are still everywhere. And after the visit, Cato starts receiving these very nerve-wracking anonymous warnings, mm. clearly delivered by other people on behalf of the retired cop, who's obviously a bent cop. Yes. And the evidence that he still wields a lot of power is made very clear. It's really well done. So the murders continue and it starts to become very edge of the seat when it starts to become close to Cato's family. A very menacing guy at the gym strikes up a friendship with Cato's teenage son from his first marriage. Mm, that's... And, you know, certain things are said and you start to become very anxious for this teenage boy because you can see that he's al allowing this gym buddy to get into his life. And then someone paints graffiti on Cato's house and they get painters in to cover up the work and they're very suspicious painters mm. who are coming and going in and out of the house, very overly familiar. And Sharon is at home alone with this baby and you don't know who the murderer is and it starts to get very very tense. That's really well done. You start mm. to suspect everybody. And the action moves starts to move all around the state as murders start happening a little bit further down the coast and, and it ends up in Hopetown. And it all comes to an incredibly dramatic conclusion. Mm. I'm not going to say any more than that because I don't want to... Oh, it sounds uh, fascinating. I'm definitely going to read that. It's a really good crime novel. It's very suspenseful. It's very well written. I'm going to give some of these to Michael because he loves crime novels and I know he'll enjoy these, but I am going to make sure that I get the first one and yes. so he can read yeah. them in order. Yeah. Well, I also read a new release by Irish writer Kevin Barry, which was, is called Night Boat to Tangier. Tangier is a Moroccan port on the Strait of Gibraltar. You know, it's, I think it's a gateway to Africa and Europe, or at least it used to be. Honestly, this book is something else. <laughs> it's electric. The writing is absolutely genius, but it requires some energy to read it. It's a short read, but it takes a fair bit out of you. Oh, wow. So Morris Hearn and Charlie Redmond are two, I guess they're Irish gangsters. Gangsters is putting it mildly. Oh. They're in their 50s, although they seem much older and way more weary than 50. Um, <laughs> they're waiting one night at the Algeciras ferry terminal in southern Spain 
that's the Spanish port. And they're waiting for a night boat. And the night boats go basically between Algeciras and Tangier in, in Morocco, hence the name of the, the novel. And they're waiting for Morris's 23-year-old daughter, Dilly, to appear. They haven't seen her for three years. She left Ireland three years previously after her mother had died and she's not been back and she's not been in touch. Oh. They're sure that she went off to live with some new age travellers. So their eyes are peeled for every dreadlocked traveller that arrives off the ferry with a dog on a lead. Oh, my goodness. And what grabs you straight away is the incredible banter between these two men. And we find out that they had been major drug dealers <laughs> into County Cork. <laughs> and, you know, they've made a small fortune, much of which now is lost. Now, the banter is very funny. And you can convince yourself that they're just a pair of old kind of spent rogues, <laughs> pathetic, you know, but there is this menacing Ooh. that is never far away. And there's always this sort of sinister edge. And as the book reveals, you know, the history and their exploits uh, and how they made their money, you just realise how incredibly bad and violent and criminal they were. Holy. And, you know, maybe Waiting for Dilly is about redemption, but I, I really can't say any more about it because okay. it just gives it away. Oh, I completely want to read this one too oh, now. I found myself reading it in an Irish accent. <laughs> oh, to be sure. Yeah, well, honestly, I was reading it in an Irish accent, if you know what I mean, in my head. It's very interesting. It's The prose is spaced out on the page, and I think that's because, you know, you it, you just, it just needs to be yeah. to digest it. And every word counts with Kevin Barry. Oh, he is one of those writers oh, where I there's nothing that. spare at all. But it's because it is, you know, the accents and the way they speak in the shorthand they speak and the banter, you know, it, it is quite lyrical and poetic and, and it's extraordinary. But look, that sinister edge to it is incredible and I, I, I'm a bit embarrassed that I can't say a yeah, great deal yeah. more no, about oh, it. you completely sold it to um, me. Because it would just give it away. I mean it bounces back between Ireland and Spain and Morocco and, and everywhere they go during their criminal exploits over the years until we get to the point where they're these two pathetic old fellows waiting for Dilly to return wow. and I, I can't say any more but it's it's a great read. Another one that I have read in the last, I've read this one about a week and a half ago, is Cold Case Investigations by Dr. Xanthi Mallet. Mm. And I bought this on a whim because I liked the fact that the author is Australian and she's a forensic anthropologist and a criminologist mm. and she works with police in solving crimes and she's been on TV. Mm. And in this book, she devotes a chapter to each of seven unsolved cold cases in Australia. Mm including Ivan Milat, who's just mm. died recently in jail. He's in the book in relation to possible other murders which have remained unsolved but which have very similar features to yeah. the ones that he yeah. was convicted. There's the missing Beaumont children. Yes, wow. Uh, there's the William Tyrrell, yeah. the little missing boy in the Spider-Man suit. Mm. And there are a couple of others that I wasn't as familiar with. There's a Wanda Beach murders oh, and a yes. few others. Yeah. And I haven't read a lot of tr 
true crime books. The only other one that I can think of is the Joanne Lee's book, No mm. Turning Back, about her escape yes. from Falconio. Bradley John Murdoch yeah. and her boyfriend Peter Falconio's not-so-lucky mm. encounter with him. And I really enjoyed this Cold Case Investigations book. It was a complete page-turner. It's written in a very accessible and easy style. Not too academic? Not particularly academic at all. That's not a criticism. I think it's still really interesting but not too obscure. Mm. One of the things I found really useful was her summary of fingerprints. Do you oh, know no, much about no, fingerprints? No, I don't. I don't. Well, I'll just tell you a tiny bit because I, yes. I found this fascinating. I've never really looked into this. But one of the pioneers of fingerprint identification was Dr Henry Falls and mm. he lived from 1843 to 1930. And he was a missionary doctor from the Presbyterian Church. And whilst he was stationed in Japan, he became interested in archaeology. Mm. And he noticed when the ancient pottery was recovered that the fingerprints of the potters were sometimes still visible. And he was so intrigued that he began to study modern fingerprints and their potential oh, wow. uses. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. And in late 1880, he published a letter in a journal called On the Skin Furrows of the Hand, in which he described the loops, walls and lines, as well as the way they branch like junctions on a railway map. And he eventually oh, collected 8,000 sets of fingerprints. Mm. And the first documented use of fingerprints in a criminal trial was in 1892 when a, a bloody fingerprint was found at a, a scene. And then independently, there was an Englishman called Sir Edward Henry, and he had established his own system of comparison. So in 1901, he was appointed Assistant Commissioner of Police at the New Scotland Yard in, UK, in the UK. And he established a fingerprint office. Mm. So it's still relatively recent. So were isn't they it? the first people to discover that everybody has a unique? Well, they started it, but I yeah. don't think they knew, and that we still don't know if they will ever uncover mm. two the same. But so to date, no two fingerprints have ever been found How to be identical. So there are now, I think the database now has over 700 million individual fingerprints and thousands are added every day and they've never yet found two, found the, same. two the same. So you'd be hard-pressed in court as a defence lawyer mm. to argue yes. that there may possibly be doubt over yeah. their fingerprint evidence. And they can now lift fingerprints from human skin. Mm, incredible. Uh, and they're really getting a lot better at technology. That sort of thing. Yeah. So I found that fascinating. Mm, There's fascinating. also information about DNA, not particularly scientific, but I still found it very mm. interesting. So that's a good one for the murderers. Mm, especially for people that, you know, really do enjoy true crime. Yeah. Yeah, it's excellent. Well, the third book I read was one of my favourite crime writers, uh, LA author uh, Michael Connolly, and his new book is The Night Fire with Harry Bosch. I think we mentioned Harry oh, Bosch yes. in one of our earlier episodes. And in this book, Harry Bosch is no longer in the LAPD. Uh, he's now a private investigator. Well, he's retired, but he does a bit of private investigation. And he is teaming up with Connolly's uh, relatively new protagonist, Renee Ballard. Uh, and this is the third book in what will be the Rene Ballard series. And it's interesting because Connolly a while ago was quite open about the fact that he had aged Harry Bosch in real time. Oh. And so there would come a point where he would have to retire mm. and, you know, he would eventually be too old. So 
Renee Ballard is sort of the new sort of series coming through, but she's in this book. She's teamed with Harry, which it's is great. Clever, isn't it? Yeah, it is clever. And and in fact, there's a few other timeless Connolly characters that also make an appearance. Bosch's half brother, Mickey Haller, who of course is the Lincoln lawyer. Yeah, he also makes an appearance in a sort of a side plot in the book as well. So in this book, Renee Ballard has left the homicide squad that she finds to be too political and and pretty misogynist and she's chosen to work as a detective on the midnight shift which of course is not everybody's choice but it suits her because she spends her daylight hours sleeping in a tent on the beach surfing and looking after her dog and her dog goes to doggy daycare at night while she's working or doggy night care maybe the book opens with Bosch attending a funeral of one of his old mentors John Jack Thompson and John Jack Thompson's widow hands Bosch an old murder book that her husband had retained with instructions only to give to Bosch. What's a murder book? Well, the murder book's essentially the investigator, what we would call a case file. So it's the investigator's case file on the homicide. And the one that Bosch is given concerns an old case from 1990. I say old case from 1990. It doesn't seem that old, does it? Yeah, (laughs) no. And it involves the death of a a young man, an ex-con called John Hilton, who had been found shot in his car. And Bosch has worked with Renee Ballard before and he thinks she really shows promise and sort of had made a pact with her when he left the LAPD that they, where possible they would work cases together. So he makes sure that the murder book ends up on her desk and he asks her for her opinion. And, of course, they're both wondering why John Jack held on to the file for so long. Mm. It wasn't one of his cases. And on reading through it, he doesn't appear on any of the notes. There's nothing in the chronology. He hasn't added anything to the file. Oh, I'm intrigued. Uh, And Ballard finds out that he hasn't even gone and asked to access the evidence box Mm. relating to the file. I'm guessing some guilt maybe. Mm. Well, there's various parts of the file Uh that have been blacked out or redacted and parts that you wouldn't normally expect. And that opens up lines Mm. of inquiry, as does the apparent involvement of some of the rolling 60s Crips street gang, which were the, Ah. the gang that controlled drug sales in the area of L.A. where Hilton was murdered. Again, I'm not going to say anything more about the plot. The book is just chock block full of detail and sort of forensic eye that you expect with Connolly. You know, he was a journalist on the crime beat for a long time and he brings sort of a curiosity to his characters and a meticulousness to police process um, in his plots and I, and I really appreciate that. He's been in Australia very recently spruiking this novel mm. and there was an article in the Australian newspaper Weekend Magazine recently and it's worth digging out so I'll reference it in the show notes because he talks about how he got started as a journalist in Florida and then he sort of got a lucky break. He did a story on the downing of the Delta Airlines plane, which sort of became a Pulitzer Prize winning oh, wow. investigation that he did with a couple of other journalists. And as a result, he went to work for the LA Times and started working the crime beat. And most of his books are inspired by discussions that he still has with detectives Wow. About real life cases. And the character of Renee Ballard is inspired by the career of a real life LAP detective, Mitzi Roberts. Wow. And she is now an executive producer on the Bosch TV oh, I series. Love that. Yeah. 
The other one that I read, Lou, which is perhaps not what you might have thought when we were choosing crime, but I chose a Dorothy L. Sayers book, oh, Clouds great. of Witness, which is the second one in her series. This is one of the Lord Peter Whimsey books. Yes. And it's it's excellent. It probably would be considered a bit more literary, mm. I think, than some crime novels, not mm. the ones we've been talking about. But she wrote 11 books with Lord Peter Whimsey as her investigator and some short story collections mm. as well. And he's a great character. I imagine he was probably one of the first aristocratic crime investigators. Yes. The first book appeared in 1923 and then this one appeared in, was published in 26. So Lord Peter Whimsey is a second son of a duke mm. and his elder brother has succeeded to the title and Lord Peter fought in World War One, and he was shelled, gassed, and he suffers from shell shock, which we now today call post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. So that's sort of his difficulty that he has to contend mm. with. doesn't appear very much in this particular book. I've read a few others and it, he has some terrible episodes sort of harking back to his experiences in the war. He has a very faithful valet named Bunter, who was his Batman in the war. I don't know if Batman, I don't know. Yeah. And uh, he's a wonderful character as well. He's ever supportive and loyal to Lord Peter. And he even saves Lord Peter's life in this one Mm. when Lord Peter nearly gets sucked down in a terrible bog in the moors. So in this case... Uh, Lord Peter's sister, Lady Mary, is engaged to a chap and he's been staying at the family's shooting lodge. To a chap. To a chap. I thought that sounded appropriate. (laughs) And one night he's found shot dead just outside the back door. And because it was Lord Peter's brother, the Lord Denver, who found the body, he was assumed to have shot the man. Mm. And uh, at the coronial inquest, Lord Denver is charged with murder. So it's not very often that a peer of the realm is charged with any crime, I think, let alone murder. There haven't been very many. So Lord Peter and Bunter get to work investigating what actually happened and and trying to um, save Lord Denver's skin. And Lord Peter ends up tramping over the moors and and interviewing some very scary characters, one of which is called Mr Grime Thorpe, which I (laughs) I do love the Dickensian names. And then he disappears overseas following a lead and you think he's not going to be back in time for the trial. And it's one of those classic old cases where the blotting paper in the study is integral to the investigation. It's very Cluedo-esque. Very Cluedo. It's not at all like a a modern crime book. Mm. But definitely, I think, would fit into the sort of the cosy. Yeah, absolutely. um, I love it. It was actually quite delightful. Um, One of the things I didn't know was that a peer of the realm being tried for murder was not tried by a jury. Oh, I had no idea. I know. It harks back to, I think it's Henry VII. They were tried by a court made up of a Lord High Steward appointed from amongst the peerage and a group of lords and they were appointed to be the trier of fact and law. What, because 12 men and women could not possibly be their peers? They Is were that... not their peers. Wow, that's mm. incredible. So it was a ba- it was called a privilege of peerage and there were others as well. This was just one of the privileges of peerage but it was abolished in 1948. So wow. in this case... 48? I know, it's quite recent, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So in this case, a Lord High Steward is appointed and the number of lords that can be appointed can vary and, of course, it can be, it was able to be manipulated because you could hand-select which lords were were appointed and weren't appointed. So it was um, open to abuse, I think. 
There's a most brilliantly written courtroom scene towards the end of the book. You can tell that Dorothy Sayers had clearly sat in on plenty of murder trials and her grasp of evidence and the way counsel speak is spot on. Yeah. It's really good, and but very interesting and yes. moves very well. So the case takes quite a dramatic turn with Lord Peter flying in from America as a last-minute surprise witness. Saving the day. And I won't say much more because that would be a spoiler, but I loved it and I would really recommend it. I've read a few of them and I'm definitely going to read mm. more. Really good. And then I haven't finished this, but I just thought I'd mention another one that I'm currently reading, which is a Lynn Truss book mm. called The Man That Got Away. And Lynn Truss is best known for her bestseller, Eats, Shoots and Leaves, which is the little book about punctuation. It's called A Zero Tolerance Approach to Punctuation. And my copy includes a free punctuation repair kit where you can go around and take stickers and add in apostrophes <laughs> on people's signs. And where people have put an extra apostrophe that shouldn't be there, you can put a sticker that says, the panda says no. <laughs> but it's a really good little resource. Yeah, I've resource, seen that. It's actually. gorgeous. Yeah, very good. I had no re idea that it was the same author, actually. Yeah, she's written many novels. She's been a newspaper columnist. She's been a sports reporter. And she's got a very sharp, clever wit. She's mm. really funny. I've got quite a few of her books and I've got some of her books, which are collections of her columns. And she's very witty. So this is The Man That Got Away is the second novel of her Constable Twitten books. Mm. And she also loves a Dickensian name. And they're all set in Brighton, in Britain. And they're an homage and a spoof on Graham Greene's Brighton Rock. Right, fabulous. So... Their Inspector Stein first appeared in the case book of Inspector Stein, which was a collection of short stories. I think that was about 2009. Then she had a big gap and then she wrote these two standalone novels, of which this is the second one. And I've got the CDs of the BBC radio plays of the short stories and they are fantastic. They really lend themselves beautifully to dramatisation with all the accents mm. and and the characters, it's absolute delight to listen to them. So they're all based in a Brighton police station in the 1950s and they're headed up by a completely ineffectual and incompetent Inspector Stein and his <laughs> equally hopeless Sergeant Brunswick. And there's only one able policeman in the whole place and that's a very young constable Twitten. and then most importantly there is the char lady who's called Mrs Groins and Mrs Groins appears on the surface to be this simple uneducated overly chatty char lady who makes them endless cups of tea and hands out biscuits and pops out to buy more jiff but she's actually the criminal mastermind Oh, in complete control of crime in Brighton. Oh, fantastic. I thought you were going to say that she is the person who sees everything that's happening and solves it, but no, she's the... So she oh, is... It's brilliant. That's very Brighton Rock, though. Very that's Brighton Rock. very Brighton Rock. Rock so she has it. this massive network of criminals working for oh. her and she uses all the information that's freely banded about by these idiots <laughs> that are running the... Genius. The, yeah. And... Young Constable Twitten has got on to her. He caught on in the previous book and tried to out her to his colleagues and they don't believe him. Oh, I love it. 
So they're a bunch of complete fools. It's completely delightful. Mm. So this novel opens in 1957 on Brighton Beach with the Punch and Judy show and the on the promenade, yeah, the very tacky waxworks museum Mm. and people buying ice creams and sitting in deck chairs and counting pebbles, and then someone notices that there's a dead man in the deck chair next to them. And it has a very clever and circuitous plot Mm. uh, and it's lots of fun. And now that Mrs Groins knows that Constable Twitten is onto her, there's this duelling where they're sort of like two cats eyeing each other off and they each know about the other and the idiots around them are oblivious and (laughs) the clues are all there. Uh, And who's making the next move. Yes. And she's, she's just privy to... So much information. Mm. One of the policemen starts chatting away about how the bank is replacing its safe. So for a few nights, all the money is going to be stored in the basement in some (laughs) sacks while the new safe is installed. And um, suddenly Mrs Groin says, I've just got to duck out and get some more handy Andy. (laughs) And then as she's leaving, she says, and that was the bank on Albion Street, was it? (laughs) He says, yes, don't tell anyone though. And of course, that night, the bank is broken into. It's just completely delightful and a lot of fun. It's the sort of book you could give someone for a present. Yeah, great gift. Uh, yeah. It's sort of a cheery, even though yeah. there's been a murder, it's it's really not so much yes. about that. It's yeah. all the, the crime and the, and the Brighton Rock sort of, uh, and the names are brilliant. They're fabulous nicknames and great cast of characters. Oh, that so. sounds great. Mm. Well, I was just going to recommend a couple more sort of books in the genre of this episode. There's a Norwegian crime writer, Jörn Lea Hurst, who is in fact Norway's most successful crime writer. He has sold millions of books, but only three of them have been translated into English. His protagonist is a sort of very senior detective, William Wisting, who's a widower, uh, and his daughter is a journalist, um, and she features in the books. And there's often a connection between her work and Ah. the investigation that he's working. And the three that have been translated are readily available. Uh, and I can highly recommend them. I really enjoy them. And, in fact, I was trawling on SBS On Demand last night, just coincidentally, and uh, there is a new series on SBS called Wisting. And so, yeah, they've, they've obviously made a TV series Fantastic. about him. yeah. What have you been diving into, Virginia? One thing that I dived deeply into, that's a bit hard to say. That doesn't sound right, does it? I dove <laughs> into talked about it. Yeah, we <laughs> dove, dive. It just really doesn't sound right. <laughs> we should have picked another name for the uh, podcast. No. <laughs> it's the podcast called The Clearing, oh, which yeah. is really only for people who are into true crime. I wouldn't recommend it. No. It's not for the faint-hearted. Not it's at pretty full-on. There are eight episodes, and it follows a lady named April Belasquio as she unravels the murders that her father, Mm. Edward Wayne Edwards, committed. And he was a terrible psychopath. And some others that he possibly committed but was never tried for. So she was the person who actually turned him in. She rang the police and Mm. put. she had suspected that he was involved. They had moved around all through her childhood. They never lived in one place very long and she had a very difficult childhood and she started to realise that there was something not right and as an adult looking back she realised that he was possibly involved 
and she rings the police and her phone call is the catalyst for opening up of the investigation and he was investigated. And so she travels around with the host of the podcast, Josh Dean, and they try and piece together not just the crimes that he was charged with and imprisoned for, but other possible ones that he was never tried for but would appear to possibly have been done by him as well. I was completely hooked on it, but I have to say that's it for me for a little while with the psychopaths because it was... Pretty, yeah, I pretty found that as well with it. I think I've got a pretty strong stomach for it, but I had to pause in between episodes with that one. It just, I really enjoyed it, really mm. recommend it. Mm. But yeah, you're right, not for the faint hearted. Yeah. We really enjoyed today's episode and we hope you have too. You'll find a list of the books we've reviewed and anything else we've talked about today in the show notes. You'll also find some of the books featured on our Instagram page at diving underscore in underscore podcast. If you would like to share with us any books you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divingin.com. And wherever you listen to the Diving In podcast, whatever platform you use, we would appreciate it if you would please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us because that will mean we can grow our audience. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in, breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Oh, there's a laser. <laughs> That's just my 20-year-old son. <laughs> We're still recording. <laughs>